Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Uh, we got a problem here in this city with uh, affordable housing. Now, this is not new, of course. Uh, this has been going on for quite some time. But uh, to their credit, the city council has taken some major steps to try to mitigate the impact of, uh, well, the wait lists and everything else. But uh, some stats they got the other day are not encouraging. The wait list for those wanting into Hamilton Social Housing continues to grow as the city uh, fails to maintain some of the units that is sold. Chad Collins uh, is the chairman of that committee. He's also the counselor for Ward 5. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Chad, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me on, Bill. It's got to be very frustrating for you. It is. I mean, you and I have covered this topic extensively over the last number of years, and and um, you know, as we we're seeing great prosperity in the city, there's just no doubt about that. And it's you know, there's a there's the flip side to that coin is that it's creating tremendous pressures on certain people in our society who are finding it uh, very difficult to find an affordable apartment unit or rental unit in our city. And so, while we're seeing escalating um, real estate prices, we're seeing a ton of development in all parts of the city, and that's uh, you know helping us with new tax assessments and record building permits. The flip side to that uh, coin and, and the other side of that story is that it's creating tremendous affordability pressures for people in the city. And um, and that wait list, as you mentioned, is is going up. And all the while that we've seen these, you know, this great prosperity in the city, um, uh, Hamilton, along with other municipalities across the country, are waiting for the higher levels of government to chip in. And, and you covered again just a couple of weeks ago the cut to the, um, you know, the carbon tax yep. uh, plan that was cut at the provincial level. And, and one of the dominoes to fall as a result of that decision was less uh, funding for affordable housing in terms of energy retrofits. And uh, Hamilton was a, a, a big beneficiary of that. Uh, just in 2017, we received, I think it was 6 or $7 million from the former government. And we anticipated that same level of funding over years 218, 219 and beyond. And so that's, that's no longer there. And, of course, the federal liberals have uh, talked about and endorsed a national housing strategy, which is great from a policy perspective, but we've yet to see any dollars flow through um, from their treasury and their, and their government to municipalities. And, and I anticipate that leading up to their election, as is traditionally the case with the province and the feds, that we'll start to see some funding announcements, not just for Hamilton, but for others. But it's, it's really... Um, you know, it, it, it should have happened two, three, four, five years ago, and, and unfortunately it didn't. Well, that was one of the things that really bothered me about that cancellation program by the government, because they misrepresented exactly what it was, uh, suggesting the cap-and-trade was a tax grab by the government. That money flowed back into the communities, and uh, was right. supposed to anyway, uh, and was earmarked by cities like your, uh, Hamilton, Toronto, and so many others right now for these very things. So it, it really has left you guys high and dry. It has, and, and uh, thankfully, and, and again, you've covered this extensively, Bill, you know, Council made a decision earlier in the term to utilize the, um, you know, the resources that we've been given by Hydro to uh, flow right into affordable housing. And so for the next 10 years, as those revenues flow to the city, we will put half of those funds into renovation and repair. And so you, you, we've, you know, we've seen news articles and, and media accounts of elevators that don't work and people who are living in substandard uh, situations, whether it's city housing or, or in another affordable um, r- rental unit managed by another provider. Um, and so th- those renovations and repairs will happen over a period of 10 years, and that's $20 million. And that's on top of the existing budget that the city has for those, um, 
those types of um, budgetary requirements. And and that's listen, that's laudable, and and city council should be congratulated for that. Yep. But you also got a a, a number yesterday, Chad. The, the yep. city staff estimated how much it would cost over the next twenty years to repair some of these things. It's four hundred million dollars. Yeah. So it, as it, as, yeah. as great as what the city did, yeah. it's a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed. Absolutely, and the message has always been: every time we make these investments, that we just can't do it alone. It's unaffordable to think that local ratepayers, whether they live in Flamborough, Winona, or somewhere in between, it's un—it's uh, just unrealistic to think that we're going to be able to solve that uh, that backlog of repairs. And that's not—that's not—that doesn't include build the waitlist issue. So we're, we also need new units, and half of the investment of that fifty million that I just referenced will go towards. Uh, constructing new units to get people off of the wait list. So there's it, the, the theme here is that it needs to be a partnership. And right now we have one of three partners at the table. We have one of three partners who are making investments. We have one of three partners who are, you know, you've covered other projects that we're working on. We're trying to capitalize on um, the real estate uh, holdings that we have. Jamesville is a great example, 191 York. Uh, we have properties that, um, you know, just as other properties across the city have, have um have increased in terms of their value. We sit on some very valuable properties, and we're 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 liquidating some of the equity in those properties and reinvesting it back into new units. And so, find trying to find creative ways to um, to provide more units or to undertake repairs in a more timely manner. But we cannot continue to do it on our own. And at some point in time, we'll have, we will have exhausted those opportunities. Um, you know, we're, we've sold vacant parking lots that uh, are underperforming at the city. So. Again, and this has all been with a council that is, um, to a person around the table, has, has supported these initiatives, and uh, is certainly led by our mayor. And, but it's it's not enough, and I can't uh, fault anyone in the community who says more needs to be done. I'm just not certain where the city will turn next from a resource perspective to increase or or supplement what we've already provided. We we should be clear on this too, because when we use a phrase like "well s- repairs" to some of these units, mm-hmm. uh, I don't want people to have the idea that that means what well, needs a coat of paint, or you know maybe mm-hmm. you have to fix part of the eaves trough. You've yeah. got units right now that are uninhabitable because of the work that needs to be done. That's right, and I think Tevia and his story that's in the Spectator today covered that fairly well. It, you know, we started the term. I think we were around 125 or 130 units, and that's this is just within the city housing inventory. We had uh, 130 units, I believe, that were, were we had boards on the windows and boards on the doors because um, they were just to the point where we couldn't have anyone live in them. They were uninhabitable, uninhabitable, as you just mentioned, Bill. And Toronto's in a worse situation. They have hundreds and hundreds of units that are in that situation where they have, uh, you know, they're, they're essentially you walk through a survey and you see unit after unit that's boarded up because they're so far gone from a capital uh, repair perspective they just you, you can't you know you couldn't imagine someone living in them and and other units are are soon to follow and so as we look at the inventory and the age of the units that we have in some of our oldest apartment buildings and some of our oldest townhome units uh, or complexes um, you know we start to see some of those those uh, the average age of age of those units are 40 50 in some cases 60 years old and that's why our board took the position that we would look at some of our oldest uh, units our singles and semis in particular some of those that needed a $50,000 foundation repair or needed, a, uh, you know, the uh, the kitchen needed to be gutted or needed new windows and a roof, you start looking at some of those repair bills and they're in the sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 range. And it's it's just not, you know, our, our dollars will go further serving our, our, re- our residents in um, higher density uh, developments. And so, the, you know, the decision has been made to sell some of those units. There's certainly no shortage of people looking for 
real estate in this city still, although it's cooled down. And we use those resources and reinvest them back into new units in higher densities, whether they be townhomes or apartments. And we end up getting more for our dollar under that kind of a business scenario. And so it's, and it's not easy. Um, you know, it means and sometimes we're displacing people. Sometimes we're moving people around, as is the case with Jamesville. And there'll be others. I know Councillor Marula has worked hard on the Queston situation where we're, we'll be moving people as part of that um, redevelopment. And so there's a lot of logistic issues to deal with. And, of course, at the end of the day, these are people who are living in these homes. And uh, many of them have children who are going to school in these communities. And so lots to think about in terms of the social impact that some of these developments have on people. Not lost on our board and certainly not lost on our council, but um, just makes it a a much more complex situation than just a dollars and cents scenario. But as you try to accommodate those those people those that, mm-hmm. that are on those wait lists, and, and some of them are in pretty dire circumstances, I understand mm-hmm. that. And, and I know that, that staff are doing what they can. The interesting phenomenon that's developed over the last little while because of the shortage, though, Chad, it's uh, overhoused or underhoused Correct. Uh, tenants. Explain that to our listeners. Well, you, you'll find situations, Bill, where maybe a single parent moves into a townhome unit with uh, two or three children. And uh, over the years, those children, obviously, uh, they grow up, they go to school. Some of them may go off to college or university. Some of them then reach the age of 18, 19, or 20. And uh, they go off and into the workplace, and, and they move out of their parents' home. And, uh, and so we find ourselves with situations where we have, um, you know, essentially single, in many cases, seniors now, um, who, who's, who, who where their children have, have left the house, and they're now in a three- or four-bedroom unit, and, uh, you know, we were faced with that dif- difficult circumstance of having someone who's then deemed overhoused. You know, they, they only require now one bedroom, um, and, and they don't require the three or four or, or that they may, they may have in their unit. And we're in a situation where we have families on the wait list who are waiting to get into a unit like that. So you can imagine in that situation where um, this parent is part of a social network in her, in her neighborhood. She may uh, go to a local religious institution, like a church that's around the corner, uh, they may volunteer in the area. Uh, they may uh, have a, a local park that they regularly visit with their with their dog. And so now we're in a situation where this person gets a letter in the mail and says, you know, you're overhoused. You're, you know, you have extra bedrooms that we could use for a family that's waiting on the wait list, much like they would have been in that position 20 years maybe prior. And that, uh, you know, that whole situation in terms of trying to find somebody then suitable accommodation without completely... Um, you know, changing everything that's going on in their life. Well, that's is, that's uh, the rub, isn't it? Task. There's, there's yeah. no guarantee that you can find another unit. It's one thing to say you don't need three bedrooms; you have to downsize, but you got to find a unit for them. Yeah, and 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 you know, there's transfers happen on that list. I think Kevia was, um, you know, had provided some statistics that not everyone on the wait list is without housing. So there is a there is a portion of of our sure. uh, our residents who are on the list but are currently housed but need a different form of housing. And that overhousing scenario, you know, that I just referenced, it would be one example. Um, and so their their accommodations are made. Uh, they they certainly don't go. To, I don't think to the bottom of the line. But there is a wait, and um, and then there is a decision to make for that person, and, and and for housing for the provider. It's not just city housing, but all providers, in terms of how you navigate and assist that individual with some very difficult decisions that you know may have implications on their personal life that many of us would find difficult to accept or or even deal with if you know you were told tomorrow, Bill, that you're you're to be out of your house in a couple of months, find new accommodations. And, and you like where you live and you like your neighbors and you have friends in the area, that's a difficult thing to come to grips with when it's not your own decision. 
Have you had any dialogue at all with, well, let's start, we're going to talk about both levels of government, but we'll start with the province right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, with it because it's a relatively new government, they haven't mm-hmm. even they haven't given us a budget yet or a throne speech, so we don't know exactly where they're going to spend their money or what the priorities are mm-hmm. at this stage. But uh, which gives you opportunity. Uh, but you know that that's that's that, that's the hypothetical. You have to understand exactly whether these guys are going to commit to this. They didn't talk a whole lot about things like uh, housing and 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 public housing and affordable housing during the campaign. There seem to be other issues that seem to dominate the conversation. Yeah. Uh, can can you can you? Make enough noise to get them to pay attention to this, because and and it, it was, I'll put this in the context: we're not the only city that's in this position. No, exactly. And I, uh, you know, they were pretty thin on the policy side of things. Uh, you know, circumstances were such that um, you know, with the change in leadership midway through the campaign and and all the drama associated with other issues, as you just mentioned, housing certainly wasn't under the spotlight, much like it was under the federal election last time around. So I think it's an open question right now in terms of where the provincial government sits as it relates to housing and the investments they'll make. Early days show, and we just referenced it, in terms of the cap-and-trade cuts and the implications on city housing and, and housing providers in general. So I, And I didn't hear any announcement you know, the day after to say, hey, don't worry about these cuts. Something will follow. It's just silence right now. And so, again, still the honeymoon period, I think, for this government. Uh, what we've seen in the early days are cuts. And um, not just in, in our sector, but in other areas as well. So I don't know, if, you know, they, they certainly ran on a policy of uh, fiscal restraint and responsibility. That, that's a very broad term and broad uh, characterization of, you know, the way they'll govern. But it certainly there's no details there related to housing. I think maybe one of our saving graces may be that sometimes when the federal government releases um, resources to provinces and to municipalities, they require, as part of the criteria, a... Um, a, a partnership between all three levels of government, and sometimes they require a certain percentage of an investment from both the province and municipalities. So maybe the federal government has an opportunity to um, to kind of force and uh, coax and cajole through their policies and, and the, the checks that flow. They can they can um, nudge the province along to contribute um, in whole or in part. But there's no guarantees under that scenario. We've seen certainly, I think Mr. Ford is marching to his own drum, and um, I'm not certain that, um, you know, for as much as Prime Minister Trudeau may want the provinces to contribute, Ontario may be a reluctant partner in that. So we'll have to see. No one has a crystal ball, and I I don't think anyone can foresee what's coming. I do believe the federal government will have something on the horizon just before their their election, uh, which is not too far away. I do believe there will be something there for municipalities. We just don't know. You know, under what terms and conditions is that? You know, is it uh, back ended again five years from now? And we're, you know, we know what's coming, but it's not here for a number of years. And the question then would be, well, what do we do in the interim? Well, and I don't want to get too deeply into the to the realities of the fiscal problems here, but I mean, what happens oftentimes, and we've talked about this numerous times, is all the years you've been involved in this file. Uh, governments will announce a program, and we do hope the federal government comes on side and does something like this. But yep. usually what it is is just a pot of money. And they said, here's mm-hmm. how much we're going to spend on this. And sure. we all know that the lion's share of it's going to go to Toronto, because Toronto's a big city, and Montreal, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, you're like you know, little birds trying to, you know, in the nest trying to get your little share of this thing. What you're looking for, and I know what you've talked about at, at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities year after year after year, mm-hmm. is sustainable funding. And the government right. just doesn't seem to understand that. And we're looking for, you're right, Bill, we're looking for certainty because, you know, oftentimes we have mortgages tied to these properties. We want to make sure that if we lock into some kind of a development that we're going to have consistent, sustainable support from the federal government over a period, not just of a term of office, but for over the course of, in this instance, the course of a a term of a mortgage. 
Um, we also want to know that for renovations and repairs, there'll be something consistent so we can, you know, properly plan out based on the building condition assessments that all providers have. We all know what 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 elevators need to be done first. We all know what LED uh, upgrades need to be done at certain properties to save on our energy bills. And so to have, uh, as you know, uh, most municipalities work over a 10-year period in terms of their capital budgets. So to have something, a plan in place that shows us where one or both levels of government are going over the next decade would certainly help everyone. And to know that there's budget certainty and, you know, there won't be uh, games played with, with those uh, budget allotments over that period of time would certainly uh, help affordable housing providers move forward with a concrete plan. What about private sector? Uh, I, I know that you've been trying to get some partnerships and, and you've been somewhat successful in that in the last little while. Clearly, yep. clearly they've got to be at the table. They are absolutely, and I, I think uh, we'll we'll only we'll only start to tackle uh, the on the waitlist side of the equation. We'll only start to tackle that issue with the further involvement of the private sector, and uh, it means opening up some of our lands to development. And it means uh, you know, in the case of 191 York, which is just a stone's throw away from the um, first Ontario Centre, uh, you know, it, it's a site that's very large in the downtown. It can accommodate a 25 or 30 story building without even a, a zoning application. And so that's very attractive to the private sector. It's right in the heart of downtown. That's very pr- uh, attractive to the private sector. And so what we've done with that property and some others is to say that we have this property, we have housing requirements. What's the private sector willing to do for, for the housing sector in order to have access to this as a prospective development? And it really, it's it's a bid process. It's, you know, one developer trying to outdo the other in terms of what they can provide. And the the, the city is certainly a beneficiary of that. The uh, the housing provider, in this case, City Housing, will be a beneficiary of that. And, of course, the ratepayers locally benefit because it's start, it starts to tackle the affordable housing issue with private sector dollars. Well, and just, to, I know we're just about out of time here, but just mm-hmm. to factor into this, for people who are listening say, well, this, this doesn't impact me. I've got a nice place. I'm fine. I'm over in the East End or I'm in Ancaster mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to impact your property taxes because ultimately if the province and the feds don't come through with the money, as they have not in the last little while, it falls yeah. to, the, to the property tax base. Absolutely. Every public-private partnership in housing will, will in, in a small or large way, depending on the development, will assist the local ratepayers because they are footing the bill for renovations and repairs and or a new development that takes someone off the wait list in an accelerated way that the city could never do on its own. And, you know, and again, in the absence of having the province and the feds at the table, it's nice to have someone looking at our properties locally and, and, and taking a chance. I mean, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's been a stigma for 30, 40, 50 years in terms of affordable housing or social housing. And so to know that the private sector is willing to invest millions, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars into these projects, um, there's, a, there's an element of risk in terms of the marketability. But we're, we're seeing no shortage of people who are interested in our properties, and I think that's a good sign, though. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. Chad, thanks as always for the update. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Have a good day. You betcha. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.